Alright, uh, so yeah, please open your Bibles to Philippians 1, 1 through 2. And. <coughs> Philippians 1, 1 through 2. <coughs> um, so yeah, earlier this week, I wanted to cover Philippians 1, 1 through 8. But I believe it would be more beneficial if we cover the background of the Philippian church and also Paul and Timothy and their relationship with the church of Philippi. So for this reason, we, we will be covering Philippians 1 verses 1 and 2 and exploring the Philippians letter <clears throat> to understand the circumstances that uh, the Philippian church faced. But before we begin, I wanted to share with you guys uh, the de definition of joy from Merriam-Webster. So Merriam-Webster defines joy this way, a feeling of pleasure <clears throat> or happiness that comes from success, good fortune, or a sense of well-being. Again, it defines joy this way, a feeling of great pleasure or happiness that comes from success, good fortune, or a sense of well-being. This definition of joy is tied to our circumstances. That is, joy is the result of an outcome, such as when we receive a promotion or when we <clears throat> see our kids perform well in school or when we receive a gift from a friend or simply have a good day. It implies that <clears throat> joy is complete after results. It Then it continues on to another cycle, and the cycle just goes on and on. But how futile that joy is. Brothers and sisters, be glad that this definition isn't our definition of joy. More importantly, it is not our definition of true joy. True joy is found all over the Philippian letters as you continue to, we continue to delve deeper into it. And the Philippian letter is truly a joyous letter to read. So we will take a look at Philippians 1, 1 through 2. And God's word reads, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter to the Philippians is part of what we call the prison epistles. The prison epistles were written while Paul was in jail. There are four prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians being one of the last prison epistles written around 62-63 AD. He was in jail, and he was about to face a trial against Nero, and he was chained to Nero's personal bodyguard 24-7. So, <clears throat> who is Paul? In Philippians 2, 5-6, if you turn there with me to Philippians 2, 5 through 6, <clears throat> Paul describes himself this way. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, he was the most religious, <clears throat> well-educated, and self-righteous man that ever existed before coming to Jesus Christ. He was the best of the Jews from being born into the tribe of Benjamin to being under one of the best rabbis. He was the chiefest of sinners persecuting the church, yet he did not realize this until he met the Lord Jesus. On the road to Damascus, our Lord Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Suddenly, he was blinded and did not eat for three days. Then the Lord sent Ananias to Paul to receive the good news about Jesus Christ. And from that day on, Paul decided to follow Jesus and preach Christ crucified, and that Jesus was the Son of God. So this leads us back to the question, who was Paul to the Philippian church? When Paul and Timothy, as we will explore a little bit later on in Acts 16, Paul and Timothy and Silas journeyed to Macedonia because of a vision he received from the Lord. And then they found the church of Philippi there on his second missionary journey. And he continued to shepherd the church since then as well. So Paul and Timothy were the first founding members of the church of Philippi. And he was like a father to them by the grace of God and a minister to them for their spiritual needs. He provided the spiritual nutrients that sustains the church of Philippi throughout the weeks, the months, and the years. Paul constantly watched over them like a father watches over a young child and warns of the dangers that lies ahead. Paul was also a slave to Christ. He was a slave to Christ, which signifies his allegiance. And 85 to 90% of Roman Italian citizens were of slave origins. They were. This was due to wars and kidnappings. People were born into slavery back then because of this. So Christ is Paul's master, and Paul is willing to serve him. Often, slaves were a good representation of their master. In other words, if their master were deceptive, so the slave would be as well. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, 5-6, if a slave loves their master, he would be marked by an awe in his ear and serve their master forever. In this sense, everyone would know that that slave belongs to his master. <clears throat> Throughout the New Testament, Paul describes general Christian living as slaves of righteousness, as opposed to slaves of sin, impurity, and wickedness. Christ set us free from being slaves to sin by the power of his spirit. We serve Christ as Lord and are slaves of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, it is a high honor and privilege that we get to serve him. 
Paul and Timothy served Jesus fully by submitting and obeying him throughout, through living out the gospel in making his name known. We are to suffer as he did, but also worship Christ in our sufferings. The word slave, as well as Paul and Timothy, are rhetorical examples in the Philippian letters. They demonstrate the partnership that the Philippians have in Christ, as well as ourselves. Of Christ Jesus signifies that Paul belongs to the family of Christ because he was first saved by Christ. Similarly, we belong to Christ because we are in his possession. Which is why Paul considers the Philippian church as his dearest partners of Jesus Christ. So, who was Timothy? Timothy was the grandson of Lewis, son of Enus, who was converted in Paul's first missionary journey. Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. He has been with Paul since Lystra. Timothy supported Paul, co-authored, sent his letters, visited churches, pastored, and evangelized on Paul's behalf. He was like a son to Paul, and Paul was like his father to him. He was Paul's clone. He embodied Christ's pattern, selflessness, perseverance, sufferings, and service to Christ for the gospel. He is the prime example of our partnership, so self-sacrifice and commitment to the gospel. His heart was Paul's heart. His mind was Paul's mind. Whenever Paul needed help, Timothy was there. When no one else would be around, Timothy was there. Timothy was there when Paul first planted the Philippian church, and that is why the Philippian church knew Paul and Timothy very well. So what was the city of Philippi like? It was a strategic city guarded by mountains on a military road. It was a central Roman militia, militia and political hub. It was rich in gold mines and extravagant springs. It was founded by Philip II of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father. It was heavily influenced by Greco-Roman culture, or in other words, both Greek and Roman cultures. So the Philippian citizens were proud to be Roman citizens because they had the exact same rights as Roman citizens. To the point when other people challenged Roman privileges, they would be hostile towards them. So if we go back to uh, God's word and look at all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Who were all the saints in Philippi? The saints in Philippi were all members of the church of Philippi. If you notice that Paul does not show any partiality or favoritism to any of the members of the Philippian church, nor does he ever exclude anyone or single anyone else. He includes all the members of a church who are weak in faith, as well as those who are strong in faith. In fact, Paul sets the stage for deacons and overseers by addressing the church as a whole first. Again, Paul sets the stage for the deacons and overseers by 
addressing this whole church first. This is to stress the point of unity within the body of Christ. Rather than disunity, deacons and overseers or the leadership of the church are not supposed to be superior than the members of the church, nor are they supposed to be divisive amongst one another. However, overseers are supposed to guard, protect, and watch the church, and they are supposed to teach and manage the church, while deacons are supposed to serve their church for whatever needs. So now if we want to understand the history of the Philippian church, we would need to go back to Acts 16. But for going back to Acts 16, that would be another lesson. So I'm going to go into it and provide like a high-level overview for you guys. So in Acts 16, I mean, the Church of Philippi was established around Paul's second missionary journey around 50 to 51 A.D., when Paul received a vision from God, you can see in Acts 16, 6 through 10, God is calling Paul to the Gentiles, to the Macedonia. And he traveled with Luke, Silas, and Timothy, where they met a woman named Lydia, who sold purple garments to wealthy Romans by the riverside of, of Philippi. This led to her and her family confessing that Jesus was Lord. Then they met a young girl, slave girl who was demon-possessed and used to gain profit for their masters by fortune-telling. But Paul saw this and casted out the demon from the young girl, slave girl, leading her to salvation in Jesus Christ. This led to Paul and Silas being falsely accused of introducing Jewish customs that did not follow the Roman law. And for that reason, the magistrates were unhappy with Paul and Silas. And they decided to throw them in jail, as Acts 16, 19 through 23 describes. But Paul and Silas were singing hymns and worshiping God in jail, which led to the miraculous earthquake that freed all the prisoners. And the jailer in charge wanted to take his own life because he, the prisoners were released and he would have to face a harsher punishment. But Paul immediately stops the jailer from harming himself, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. <clears throat> in response, the jailer asked Paul, What must I do to be saved? And Paul told the jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus you, and you and your family will be saved. Ever since then, the jailer took care of Paul and Silas by washing their wounds, and he and his family confessed that Jesus was Lord. So, brothers and sisters, this is how the Philippian church started. With only a handful of people, Lydia and her family, the jailer and his family, and the young girl. This was barely enough for a Jewish synagogue which required 10 men, but it was already a multi-generational church from different backgrounds and social status for the purpose of Christ. 
This is a church that Paul and Timothy shepherded from its birth to the end of their lives. They saw the spiritual ups and downs of the church and developed a deep relationship with its members. So deep that Paul considers the Philippian church as his joy and crown. Fast forward to 12 years after planning the church, Paul was writing the letter while he was in jail in Rome. The church of Philippi had florists full of spiritual fruit and families ever since Paul founded the church. And the letter took place when Paul and the Philippians and any other Christians would have to face Nero. As you recall from Michael's church history lesson, Nero was a wicked man. He had blamed Christians for the great fire that happened in Rome around 64 AD. He had Christians crucified and thrown to dogs and publicly incarcerated. He poisoned his own Praetorian or royal guards, murdered his own mother, Agrippina, and kicked his own wife to death, Papia Sabin, who was pregnant. This was the Nero that all Christians had to face. <clears throat> An emperor that had no moral compass, who would even betray his own royal guard, and even his own family. Even after that, the other Roman emperors would continue to persecute Christians, and they were not much better than Nero. Brothers and sisters, let us praise God that we have not yet we have not yet have to face a ruler as wicked as Nero. <clears throat> this is one of the circumstances that Paul and the Philippian church had to face. Facing the persecutions from Roman authorities by challenging many of the Greco-Roman cultural norms, such as the belief of many gods. This is similar to how our culture tries to change our Christian worldview by introducing new genders. But heavenly, heavenly citizenship was constantly being challenged by Roman citizenship, similar to how we are able to <clears throat> enjoy privileges, privileges of being a U.S. citizen, the Philippians were able to enjoy privileges of being a Roman citizen. Roman citizens could not be flogged and had the rights to a trial. Roman citizens could purchase property like how we are able to purchase property today. We can see Paul encouraged the Philippian church to persevere during these times of persecutions. If you take a look at Philippians 1, 29 through 30, Philippians 1, 29 through 30, God's word reads, <clears throat> For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Because the Philippians believed in Christ, the Roman authorities, such as Nero, would persecute them, just like what they did to Paul. Brothers and sisters, being a Christian is no easy life, and we will endure hardships. But what makes our hardships different 
from those not of Christ is that we are able to turn to Christ and believe in him, making our sufferings in Christ minuscule to what he had to endure for us, stirring our hearts up to confidently rejoice in him. Another hardship that the Philippian church encountered was disunity because man was born into sin due to Adam and Eve's sin causing the fall. Sinful men have a natural inclination to not to desire unity. Our culture even teaches us the importance of individualism rather than unity. And brothers and sisters, because we are saved through Jesus Christ, He gave us the Holy Spirit and we are able to turn away from this natural inclination and towards unity. In fact, if we look at the Trinity, the Trinity is in perfect unity. If you think about it, how all members of the Trinity work together for our salvation, they are all working together in unison. So let us take a closer look. That's Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27. Which reads, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Here, the church needs to stand firm in one spirit, in one mind, for the purpose of the gospel, regardless if Paul is present or in the church or not. Brothers and sisters, is that the case for when our shepherds is away from the church? Let us encourage one another to be of one mind's and of one spirit for the purpose of the gospel. So if we take a look at Philippians 2.2, Philippians 2.2, which reads, Maintaining the same love, being united in one spirit, thinking on one purpose. This is what the church needs to be. This is what the church needs to model, to have the same love, to have the same spirit to have the same purpose, so that they would be encouraged by Christ through the fellowship of believers within the church, showing no partiality or favoritism. Paul exhorts the Philippians to unity because of the contention within the church. If we take a look at Philippians 4.2, Philippians 4.2, which reads, I urge Udea and Synthic to think the same way in the Lord. <clears throat> this is this suggests that there was potential tension between the members of the church. And when we take a look at Philippians 4 3, Paul exhorts the church <clears throat> to help the workers of the church. He's in Philippians 4 3. He says, Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel, with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
So this also suggests that there could have been potential contention between the leadership of the church and its members. That is why Paul encourages the Philippians to help these fellow workers and to fulfill his joy in Christ Jesus. The third situation that the Philippians had to face was false teachers. False teachers were everywhere and misled a lot of people, especially in the early church age. False teachers even continue on to this age and continue to mislead people. If we look at Philippians 1.16, Philippians 1.16, which reads, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. This reminds the Philippians of the false teachers at a time when the Philippians were undergoing persecution. A time where they could have been very vulnerable and at their lowest point. False teachers wanted to discourage Paul in his gospel ministry. Especially the Pharisaic Jews who wanted to follow the law and saw themselves as holier than anyone else. They wanted Paul to feel the weight of his chains, but more importantly, rob Paul of his joy in Christ. So if we look at Philippians 3.2, Philippians 3.2, which reads, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. This here, Paul warns the church of Philippi of these false teachers. But he also assures the salvation of the Philippians by reminding them that they are saved by the grace of God through Christ Jesus. And by his grace, the Spirit prompts us to serve him. The Spirit also gives confidence in Christ and speak of Christ boldly to others rather than speaking of our own works. We are like a resounding microphone pleading others to believe in our Lord Jesus. In contrast, the mutilators of the flesh are the ones who serve by their own self-righteousness. They continue to boast in themselves and about their self-righteousness without any regards to God's grace. The last concern or situation that the Philippian church had to face is in Philippians 4.10. Philippians 4.10. Which reads, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Paul had to face trial against Nero, and he was in jail with the harshest conditions. Oops. Excuse me. Paul faced enormous challenges. One of the conditions was dehydration, not drinking any water for long periods of hours. Another one of his situation while he was in jail was 
sleep depravity. He didn't get much sleep. The jail cells were very uncomfortable, especially in the old times at Rome. There was poor ventilation, no natural night light, uh, small meals that he could only eat maybe like once a day. And his heavy and un uncomfortable chains, which sometimes caused wounds, and they were never treated. Some of the prisoners died because of these wounds. The chances of survival is slim going to prison in Rome. But Paul survives by the grace of God through the outsiders who were helping him, such as the Philippian church and some of the Praetorian guards. <clears throat> so it was only necessary for the Philippians to have concern for him. So in <clears throat> Philippians 1, 12 through 14, Philippians 1, 12 through 14, <clears throat> which reads, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. This is how Paul responds. Paul <clears throat> comforts the Philippian church of his welfare, but he also comforts them that the gospel will continue on regardless of where he's at. The gospel mission is not dependent on him, but the gospel mission continues to advance throughout the Gentile region because of his boldness of Christ. Because Paul continued to preach Christ crucified while he was in jail, chained to Nero's royal guards. Some of the some of Nero's royal guards knew of Christ and may have became saved. So, if we go back to the definition of Merriam-Webster's definition of joy, which again says, joy is a feeling of great pleasure or happiness that comes from success, good fortune or sense of well-being, or gladness. <clears throat> so this definition of joy does not fit Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a paradox in Paul's letter. It is not our true joy. I would rather define this as happiness rather than true joy. John MacArthur defines happiness this way. Happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight based upon present circumstance. Happiness is related to happenings. Happiness is related to happenstance. Happiness is related to hap, which is a word that basically conveys the idea of chance. Happiness is that which you really can't plan and program. It may happen, it may not happen, and it seems so elusive. So what did Paul do, despite the circumstances that the Philippian church faced, Paul encouraged them with true joy. 
He models what it is like to have true joy, and true joy that reverberates, reverberates throughout the Philippian letter. Let's take a brief look at what the true joy is in Philippians by addressing how the church should respond to its circumstances. To address the persecutions by the Roman authorities, Paul encourages the church of Philippi this way in Philippians 1.18. Philippians 1.18, which reads, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. True joy is never affected by any feelings or circumstances because it is rooted in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we should not be discouraged by those who misuse the gospel for selfish gains, but be encouraged by our own ministry to others in furthering the gospel. True joy is a deep down confidence, no matter the circumstances, difficulties, or problems. It is rooted in our salvation in Christ and his salvation plan. So if we go to Philippians 2.2, which addresses the problem of disunity within the church, Philippians 2.2 reads, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul encourages the Philippian church to strive for unity in order to make his joy complete. This is because his joy is Christ's joy. And by making his joy complete, it makes Christ's joy complete even more. As a result, true joy is most prominent when the church is working together for Christ. In Philippians 4.10, lastly, which addresses the concern for Paul, Philippians 4.10 reads, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, I mean, before, but you lacked opportunity. True joy is comforted. When our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ think of your welfare, <clears throat> think of your welfare, and when you are working for the purpose of Christ. True joy becomes ours when we first believe in Him. Brothers and sisters, it is our permanent possession. No moments of happiness can suppress the joy of Christ. No circumstance can overjoy, I mean, overthrow the joy of Christ. All we need to do is fix our eyes on Christ. Then the Holy Spirit will fan the flames within our hearts, producing a joy in Christ. We can see this throughout the Philippians letter, which is the primary theme of the letter. Christ is mentioned throughout the letter 50 times because he is our supreme joy. He is the king that resides in our hearts, that waves the white flag. We are his, and he is ours. He is our true joy, 
and we are his true joy, an everlasting joy that comes from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And that, brothers and sisters, is the true joy of the Holy Spirit who resides in our hearts and the true joy of Jesus Christ. Thank <clears throat>